0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: It's mind-boggling. It's got these enormous turtle heads, sort of vomiting skewers which have got bits of meat on them and it's got a, a crustal of bread that's been sculpted into a chalice and it's filled with prawns and it's just absolutely bonkers
2: That was Annie Gray discussing Queen Victoria's eating habits
1: She becomes very
3: ambitious for herself and for her family and she's convinced that her children have a very strong claim uh, to the thrones of both England and, and later of Scotland mm.
2: And that was Morgan Ring talking to us about the life of Henry VIII's niece.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
2: Hello and welcome to our second podcast of May 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. First up this week, we've been speaking to Annie Gray, a food historian and broadcaster who presented Victorian Bakers on BBC Two last year. Annie is the author of a new book entitled The Greedy Queen, Eating with Victoria, which explores the fascinating dietary habits of Britain's second longest reigning monarch and the wider story of food in the 19th century. She spoke to our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman.
4: One of the, the things that struck me most um, from the book was, was how complicated um, Victoria's relationship with food was. Um, w- were you aware of this before you started researching it and, and writing the book?
1: Um I had a vague background in Victoria and her food in that I'd done a bit of work for English Heritage Osborne House so I'd looked then at the fabric of the kitchens and what was going on and how things were cooked but obviously in order to understand it you need as well to have a look at the person who's eating it or the people who are eating it so I did certainly have inklings that her relationship with food was going to be complicated I knew that she had gone on diet as a teenager and you can't really just if you look at her, you you can't really imagine that she didn't have a complicated relationship with food because you don't get a forty-five-inch waist unless your relationship is somewhat fraught. But I don't think I realised the level of interest in food that she had, or the excitement about food that she had actually, or indeed that it was a kind of lifelong love.
4: Mm. I mean, do you? I mean, she had she's had a very strict upbringing uh, at Kensington Palace. Um, and she, you write that she was given sort of very simple fare um, and sort of treated almost as a child, even, you know, in her teenage years. Do you think this had a, a, an impact on her, her later food choices?
1: I think, yes, she was very much affected by her childhood. I mean, she was affected by her childhood in an awful lot of ways, far beyond food. Um, Everyone is. But I do think that the fact that she was so scrutinised as a child and her eating habits were among those things that were scrutinised more than some other things, that certainly had an impact later on. Um, I mean, I think there are several factors, really. One was that she was constantly under scrutiny and therefore she was constantly being told not to gobble, not to be greedy, not to mix salt in with her gravy, all sorts of bits and pieces from her family and, you know, people who liked her as well as her mother who doesn't seem to have liked her very much. Um, so I think she did feel sort of overly under pressure at the table. And therefore in later life when she could behave perhaps slightly less in a socially acceptable manner, she she chose to. But I think also because food was one of the few things she could control, her own appetites were one of the things she could control as a child. She developed a relationship with food, which was very much about her and the plate in front of her. So as a teenager, she chose to go on a diet and she gave up lunch for a year or so. And that was her deliberately saying, look at me, I can control something. And she would skip dinner, quite ostentatiously skip dinner and storm upstairs to her room and refuse to come down when she was having arguments with her mother. So I think that idea that she could control food among you know, she had so little control over anything else that food became a crutch for her and a way of asserting control throughout her entire life. And later on, she uses it, I think, to assert control over other people as well. So, notoriously, she could put away seven or eight courses in half an hour, but she could also slow down and do that over two and a half hours. And that Pacing was very much set by her, so it was yet another means of asserting control over people. When, as an older lady, where the government was spiralling out of control, where people were telling her what to do all the time, where again she would have suffered a certain lack of control as she did when she was a teenager. Mm.
4: I mean, wh- what did her friends and family feel about her her eating habits? I know, sort of, her uncle Leopold um had a few concerns about them, didn't he?
1: Uh, the letters between Uncle Leopold and the young Victoria are absolutely brilliant. I mean, in some ways, they're hilarious, and there's there's a real affection between them as well. But Leopold can be quite sanctimonious, and especially as Victoria grows older and it becomes more and more obvious that she's going to inherit the throne, the advice that he sends is just sort of you know, you should do this, you should do that. I hear a certain little princess is gobbling again, <laughs> and they. They read in such a patronising manner from a modern viewpoint. Um, and she clearly sees that they are slightly patronising because some of her responses are incredibly pert. There's a bit where he says to her that he thinks that seagulls must be very happy. Sort of a propos of nothing. Um, and she comes back with, I don't think you'd find that they have a very nice life in this country because people shoot them. So, she's very much, she very much responds to them in kind. But it's quite clear that her family do worry. I mean, Uncle Leopold as well seems to think quite bizarrely that um, if she controls her diet and takes more exercise, then she'll grow taller, which does slightly suggest that he was a bit bonkers sometimes. But um, but on the other hand, she also wrote to him and said she'd definitely become taller. Um, so I think there was a level of wishful thinking going on on both sides. Mm.
4: Um, I mean does food feature um, a great deal in her journals because she was a prolific writer wasn't she
1: She was a prolific writer. although The journals are quite problematic as a source for anything Victorian because the early journals up to 1837 were very much overseen by her mother. So I think you have to regard them as a kind of form of passive aggressive communication, really, um, as much as a realistic depiction of what was going on. And after that date, they tend to have been edited by her youngest daughter, Beatrice, who took the journals and edited them for sort of public consumption. And Beatrice is well known for doing things like taking out the names of servants so that Victoria was quite interested in the lives of her servants and certainly saw them as people. So she would write in her journal something like, went to the Great Exhibition and took with me Bob, Peter and Mary. Um, And Beatrice would edit it. So it just said, went to the Great Exhibition and the servants came too. So there is a supposition and 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 I suspect that it's certainly true that Beatrice also would have removed things like overly gluttonous food references although we won't know because of course we don't know they were there in the first place Um, and in the early years when they're unedited food is actually quite conspicuous by its absence but on the odd occasion where it comes through there's a real joy in what's going on there's a wonderful occasion when Victoria is out on the Solent on the royal yacht and her mother's very badly seasick And she just sort of says triumphantly, Mama was very sick, but I had a mutton chop and really enjoyed it.
4: (laughs) Um, Yeah, there is definitely a sense of a real excitement around food for her. Was it just the eating of food that she was interested in? Was it the kind of the making of it? Was she interested in how, how the food was prepared?
1: I think she was interested in food preparation to some extent. I mean, obviously, this is a girl who is the child of a duchess who is born into the aristocracy, who, even if she hadn't become queen, would have been expected to marry very, very well and command servants. So at no point in her life would she have been expected to have a knowledge of how food was prepared. But she did keep a cookery book. Um, almost certainly. And she also had her children taught to cook and seems to have participated on some occasions in at least the eating of it, if not the preparation of it. So she's clearly interested in what goes into things and where they come from. And from time to time, she does note about particular foods Sort of details about them which do show an interest so she has um she falls in love with brussels biscuits at one point which are sort of rusk and she says in her journal that they are a form of rusk that uncle leopold has made in his kitchens and sent across so she's by no means um divorced from where from sort of food provenance and later in life again when she's got children she's very very careful to make sure they know where their food comes from and i would read that as being that she is is also interested, so they go and they watch ice being harvested and put in the ice house. There are farms on site at, at, uh, on the Isle of Wight, and they very much go and see the cattle and see the animals before they're butchered. Um, the children will have vegetable gardens as well, and the letters between herself and her eldest daughter are full of things like, "Well, I don't think the vegetables are being grown very well," and she's very, very keen on visiting the kitchen garden and inspecting the fruit before her state visits and that kind of thing. So she's she is involved and she does know where things come from. Mm.
4: Um, She met Albert when she was very young. Um, Did he have any sort of influence over her eating habits?
1: Well, I think he calmed her down. Um, I'm not really convinced that a sort of 19 year old who's partying hard needs calming down but she in later life certainly thought she'd needed calming down um by the time she married Albert she'd become a bit of a party animal and she was up till sort of 5am and she was drunk and going to bed very very late and getting up late and feeling guilty and all the things that I think everybody really does as a teenager but um but when she married Albert, Albert didn't like food. He didn't share at all her love of food. And he regarded it very much as fuel rather than as something that was exciting. And he almost certainly suffered from Crohn's disease. So he did have his reasons for not liking food. But it certainly seems that during the period she was married to him, she didn't put on weight which she had done before she'd married him. She didn't therefore have to yo-yo diet and lose it, which again she did before she met him. And when you look at photographs of her, her figure remains very trim throughout the entire marriage. So I think he probably did control her eating. Um, They certainly ate smaller meals when they were together rather than the enormous, gigantic meals that they were eating in state. Um, So he did have an influence. And then, of course, when he died, she turned back to her first love and put on weight incredibly rapidly.
4: Mm. I mean, what what sort of figure was fashionable during the period? I mean, was she seen as fat by, you know, when she did start putting the weight on?
1: Oh, yes. No, people were quite cruel. They called her podgy and plump and said she was growing enormously fat. And that applies even as a teenager. People never sort of said she had any good... They commented that she had a good complexion. But very few people said that she was pretty. And certainly in the pictures of her when she's younger, she has a habit, which her half-sister Fedora comments on, of having her mouth half open um uh, which is not particularly flattering. Um but of course what constitutes fat today is certainly not what would have constituted fat in the time. Um there are two occasions in the journals where she notes her weight and because we know her height was five foot one, you can work out her BMI from it. Just before she was married, she had a BMI of eighteen point eight, which is almost underweight by modern um in modern sort of um thinking. So were we to have seen Victoria in 1840 from a modern day perspective, she would have looked absolutely tiny, sort of dangerously thin. Um, and, but nobody said she looked dangerously thin at the time because of course, so many people were very, very thin because of such malnutrition among the working classes. But when she put on weight, people were quite quick to say that she was fat. Um, and there was no kind of beating about the bush either. The queen is growing enormously fat. She's a little round ball. Um, I couldn't tell what size she was. So, you know, Yes, it was commented on. And it wasn't necessarily commented on in a favourable way either. But um, I suppose there must have been then, as I think now, to some extent, a feeling that, well, she's the queen. If she wants to eat like that and become a little round ball, then she's kind of the one person that really can do that.
4: Mm. I mean, did it bother her, do you think?
1: did in the early years. She was very worried when she first came to the throne when she was 18 that she was going to put on weight and become like one of her Hanoverian uncles who were renowned for being extraordinarily large. And Lord Melbourne used to tease her quite a lot about the fact that she was bound to be fat because they all were. Um she constantly compared herself to the people she saw around her and not always favourably either. So she would constantly say, I saw so and so. She was very pretty and very thin. And she went on a crash diet um, in 1838, 1839 and lost about a stone, if not over a stone. Um, So she certainly was worried about it then, Later on, she doesn't seem to have been particularly at all. And she also suffered digestive problems later on in life, um, which she did in the early years as well. I mean, one of the most interesting documents I found when I was researching the book were her doctor's notes um, from the mid-1830s when he talks about her having constipation and it's sort of real insight into this young teenager. But later on in life, she suffered terrible indigestion. Um, and people would say to her, why don't you cut out some food? And she would just sort of ignore them and plough through the ice creams anyway. So I
4: mean, do we know what her favourite foods were, the sort of things that she was asking to be made for her?
1: Um, Not as such, no. There's a lot of secondary sources which will cite the fact that she liked a nice boiled egg for breakfast or that she liked very plain food and that kind of thing. But when you drill down into them, they don't really seem to be based on anything, um, or at least they're based themselves on hearsay. Um, She does comment more on things like plainer foods than non-plain foods in the journals and letters when she comments at all. But I think that does have to be seen in the context of somebody who usually ate a very, very rich diet. So the plain stuff was unusual rather than sort of necessarily nicer she did like fruit and that's something that stayed with her for her whole life um, very very early on she has a memory of, of gorging on peaches and feeding a, a page's daughter some peaches um, over at um, Windsor and then later on she talks a lot about visiting kitchen gardens and that kind of thing and even in old age she would sit down quite happily to what one of her ladies-in-waiting called ginormous apples and put them away so she certainly loved fruit very very good fruit that was well harvested and well grown and she also said Seems to have liked mutton a lot. Um, there aren't any really major changes between her menus and those of William IV when she first comes to the throne. So it's very hard to say, oh, well, this is definitely something that she wanted added to the menus. I think she had um, wider and bigger issues on her mind at the time. But mutton certainly was something that she commented on a lot in the journals. Um, and she seemed to enjoy that quite a lot. And, you know, she also drank an awful lot. She was an, a great lover of whiskey. Um, drank quite a bit of claret on one occasion at least mixed the claret and whiskey which is surprisingly nice <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> well I just thought you know a lot of people knock it and say it must have been a mistake or how disgusting and I think well you just don't know to really try it do you <laughs> exactly um so I mean was her diet healthy what would a
4: what would a typical meal have been you know just just the family say if they weren't entertaining
1: um If they weren't entertaining and it was in the sort of 1850s, she'd probably have soup and some fish and maybe a couple of meat dishes, which would be a choice, some vegetables and then one or two puddings and then end with some fruit. So it's a fairly muted meal. It's probably only about sort of six different dishes. By modern standards, it's hard to judge because a lot of the menus look very, very meat heavy, but that's because the vegetables are usually used as garnishes and not in the sort of modern sense of garnish where you put one bit of lettuce on the side of a plate and that's a garnish, but in the older fashioned term where it's actually a really intrinsic part of the meal. I mean, she doesn't seem to have suffered, particularly suffered dietary related diseases and, and neither really did most of her family. So I think we can say that her diet was fairly healthy. Um, it was certainly high in meat and it was certainly fairly low in carbohydrate. So I suppose if anything, it approached the Atkins diet rather than Um, anything else. But because of the range of foods that were eaten in the Victorian period, and of course, as the Queen, she was eating a very, very wide range of foods, she did really get almost everything she needed. There were no major dietary deficiencies in in terms of what she ate. And after that, really, it was just a uh, a question of what she chose to eat, to eat even. She constantly sought out new challenges when it came to food and new flavours and new tastes and was quite adventurous in her tastes. I think for her, it was a way of exploring the world when, as queen, as a woman, as a Victorian, the world was actually quite a restricted place for her.
4: So the royal kitchens—I mean, were they sort of designed to cater for these these huge number of dishes that were going out, and the number of courses, and, and this this kind of this mass entertaining that they were doing? I mean, how did the kitchens sort of cope with that?
1: the kitchens so victoria had obviously four palaces four main palaces windsor and buckingham palace which were the state palaces and also osborne and balmoral which were owned by herself and and albert and the big hub for all of them was windsor and i think when you look at royal dining it's very easy to look at the menus um and to look at the number of people dining and to look at the the settings and assume that it's, it's very much fine dining but it's easy to forget that those kitchens were catering not only for the Queen's table, which might be, say, 20 people, so equivalent to a small restaurant today, um, but that they were also catering for thousands and thousands of other people. And when you look at the number of people that were being fed per month by the Royal Kitchen, it always numbers in the several thousands and often numbers in the tens of thousands. And Even in terms of the royal table, if there was a ball supper on or something like that, there could be 2,000 people being fed this very, very high-end food. So the kitchens were like a factory. Um, Windsor Castle Kitchen was the hub. It had been rebuilt by George IV in the 1820s. Um, And even today when you walk in, it's quite jaw-dropping. It's a beautiful, beautiful space lit from above and very much like a temple, as one of the apprentices put it in the 1890s. And it is stunning to work in. It's very large. And it's got, as you would imagine with any Victorian kitchen, loads of auxiliary rooms. So you have both the main kitchen, but you also have a confectionery, which then has a confectionery scullery and an oven. You've got a bakehouse, which has got um, a huge beehive oven in. You've got two rooms for the pastry. You've got a room just for preparing vegetables. There's a fish room. There's a steam room. There's, you know, it there's loads and loads of rooms as part of, of Windsor. So it's very much set up for maximum efficiency. Um, and then Buckingham palace kitchens were, well, they were a mess actually. They were part finished when Victoria moved in and had open urinals next to them and rubbish overflowing. And it was very badly ventilated and the whole palace smells of like wee. And you read it and you think, how could this be true? This is a Royal palace. Um, the neighbors all complained that Buckingham palace was bringing the area into disrepute. So, um, Buckingham Palace, I think, was not really fit for purpose until later. Um, And both of those kitchens were designed to be staffed by the full contingent of staff, so around 45 people cooking in them. Um, And then you had Balmoral and Osborne, which the Queen regarded very much as holiday homes, although... Holiday homes for Royal are a little bit different to holiday homes for everyone else. And the kitchens there usually had anything from sort of eight to 10 people working in them and were much, much smaller. And at that point, a lot of stuff was supplied by Windsor. So there's this constant procession of baked goods in particular going from Windsor out to wherever the Queen was. They really are incredible, the kitchens and the way they worked and the way they had to work in order to just process the sheer amount of food that came into them.
4: And and how did the royal household themselves eat? I mean, obviously they wouldn't have had the same sort of food as Victoria, but did they eat better than the sort of general population?
1: They did. When you look at any of the palaces, you sort of almost see society in a microcosm. I mean, obviously within wider Victorian society, you've got your upper classes, your middle classes, of which there are a bewildering number of divisions, and then the sort of working classes and then the very poor. And with the exception of the very poor, All of those people are represented within the palace, the wider establishment rather than the household. the immediate level just below the Queen is her ladies in waiting and gentlemen attendees, and they have a very similar menu to the Queen's menu. Um, in fact, often they have more food. Um, and then below them, you've got ecuries, you've got um, various dressers, you've got personal attendants, and then below that, you've got the people who are actually doing the work. So you've got your cooks and your chefs, but you've also got your housemaids and you've got your grooms and your coachmen. And by the end of the reign, you've got electricians, you've got got choristers that come in, you've got the band. There's, it's incredible variety of people eating at the expense of the crown. And a lot of what they ate is detailed in dining ledgers, which are still kept um, in the Royal archives. So you can see at a glance, not everything that's being eaten, because for the lower groups, really, it's only detailing the meat. Um, but you can see what people are eating. And the really big thing that comes out is that everybody, absolutely everybody in the palace has meat every single day twice or three times a day and that as a comparison to the general population is just almost unbelievable
4: what was the sort of most extravagant dish um you know either by cost or or look um that you've sort of found um served up uh, in your research
1: i think my favorite was one in york called the hundred guinea dish um you find turtle soup appears with a sort of quite tedious monotony at big corporate banquets um, and at state dinners. And turtle soup was served at this particular banquet as well. But the chef, Alexis Soyer, who was sort of this, I suppose he was kind of Hugh Fernley, Whittingstall, Jamie Oliver, Delia and Mary Berry all rolled into one with a mixture of Heston. He was amazing. He's one of my my total culinary heroes. But he masterminded this banquet in 1850 for um, Prince Albert, who was touring the country to promote the idea of a great exhibition. And Soyer was a real showman. Um, and he knew how to use the media very well. So at this banquet where turtle was, soup was served and so were lots and lots of other dishes, he put together a dish called the Hundred Guinea dish because if you had decided to cook it from scratch, then it would have cost you 100 guineas to buy all of the ingredients that went in it. So a phenomenal amount of money. But for him, it was a sort of leftover dish because it used the heads from the turtles and it used the oysters, the bit of meat that sits sort of under the the wing of a bird. Um, And it used sort of bits of stale bread or sauces that had been used elsewhere. And the whole thing was a real mishmash. And there was a picture of it in the Illustrated London News. And it is... It's mind boggling. It's got these enormous turtle heads, sort of vomiting skewers, which have got bits of meat on them. And it's got a, a crustard of bread that's been sculpted into a chalice and is filled with prawns. And it's just absolutely bonkers. And the prince got really bad indigestion after it. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> and I sort of wonder whether anybody actually tasted this dish. But at the same point, it's just so outrageous. He kind of hope somebody did.
2: That was Annie Gray, The Greedy Queen, Eating with Victoria, goes on sale today, the 11th of May in the UK, published by Profile. And in the US, it's also available from today for the Kindle. And you can read a version of this interview in the May 2017 issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's edition, we have articles on the Reformation, King Arthur, the attack on Guernica and England's first queen among other things. You can get hold of the magazine in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95 including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptionscom forward slash history US. Our second interview this week is with the historian and author Morgan Ring, whose latest book is a biography of Margaret Countess of Lennox. Margaret was a niece of Henry VIII, but she also had a very interesting life in her own right. Our website assistant Ellie Cawthorne caught up with Morgan recently to find out more. Who
3: was
0: Margaret Douglas and why is she such a fascinating figure?
3: Well, Margaret is partially fascinating because of where she fits into the Tudor family tree. So she is the only daughter of Henry VII's eldest daughter, Margaret Tudor. Uh, Margaret Tudor is married twice, first to James IV the King of Scots, and her children by James the Fourth are the Scottish royal family. And but then after James the Fourth is killed at the Battle of Flodden, Margaret Tudor marries again. Uh, rather impetuously, she marries Archibald Douglas, the sixth Earl of Angus, and they have a very tempestuous marriage. And Margaret Douglas is the product of this second marriage. Uh, so she's part of the Tudor family tree. She's also half Scottish, uh, and that means she's got this quite interesting dynastic inheritance. But she's also important because of what she does, because of the ambitions that she has for her family. So over the course of Margaret's life, she remains very dedicated to uh, Catholicism in spite of the English break with Rome in the 1530s. So she becomes very ambitious for herself and for her family. And she's convinced that her children have a very strong claim uh, to the thrones of both England and, and later of Scotland. And she wants to see them reigning throughout the British isles and ideally she wants to see them doing that as the catholic monarchs of of both england and scotland um so she's important because of where she fits into the tudor family tree but also because of how active a role she plays in the politics of the tudor succession
0: Mm -hmm. can you give us an idea of what life at the tudor court was like at the time and how did how margaret saw it change over the course of her life
3: Hmm. So she comes to the court of Henry VIII uh, at the Christmas of 1530, and it's this incredibly glamorous occasion. And Margaret has been living in uh, in northern England, very cut off from the rest of her family. Uh, And suddenly she's surrounded by the uh, uh, sort of the architecture and the lavish gift giving and the dancing and the music of being at the Tudor court. And she falls in Uh, eventually with a very literary-minded circle of courtiers and she becomes involved in writing English poetry herself and transcribing the poetry that's written by other people Uh, and it's a place of, of real intellectual ferment and it's also where she grows up and she falls in love for the first time.
0: So Margaret was at the court of Henry VIII as you've mentioned who was her uncle. Did she have a relationship with him at all?
3: Uh, she did. And when she comes to court, uh, Henry places her in the household of his daughter, Mary, um, and uh, Mary uh, is very dis. Uh, When Henry breaks with Rome and tries to overthrow and overthrows Mary's mother so that he can go and uh, and marry a second time to Anne Boleyn, Mary defies him. And so they have this very, um, uh, they have a great falling out. Whereas Margaret and Henry don't really fall out. Margaret comes back to court um, and she moves into Anne's household and Henry makes a a big fuss about her. He pays for her to have um, uh, all sorts of um, uh, expensive clothing. Uh, he plots these various um, marriages that uh, that she might be able to make, um, and generally um, makes quite a quite a big deal of her. But they also have three major fights. Um, because they're both very, uh, very stubborn people, um, and the first, uh, the first major falling out that they have is in 1536, right after Anne has been executed, and Henry discovers that Margaret has secretly become engaged without, uh, without his permission, um, and he takes this very much amiss because with. All of Henry's children being deemed illegitimate, uh, Margaret is actually quite near the top of the to the top of the line of succession. So her marriage is a matter of real consequence, uh, and she is not really in a position to just go and uh, and get engaged without uh, without Henry say so. So that's their first major quarrel, um, and it's the first time she's sent to the Tower. She has another. Uh, sort of ill-advised love affair um, that's discovered when Catherine Howard's household collapses. And that uh, that doesn't come to much of anything. She sort of apologizes objectly and goes off and hides in the countryside for, for a little bit and, and then comes back and, and it's fine. But right before Henry's death, they have a final major quarrel about the way she's treated one of his servants and she's cut out of the will. Uh, and she and her family are demoted from from their their rightful place in the line of succession. And she regrets this very much after he dies, because it feels as though it wasn't a major political quarrel. It was something very personal. Uh, and if he'd lived a bit longer, they would probably have been able to sort it out. And she keeps his portrait uh, in her house for, for the rest of his life. So even though they have a a stormy relationship. I think she always looks on him as the person who brought her to court, um, and the person who was the uh, one of the earliest uh, major influences in in her life. And she regrets that it ends as badly as it does.
0: So all of that would suggest that she was really pretty strong willed and pretty fearless. What else can we tell about her personality?
3: Yes it's great. I mean I think strong-willed and and fearless are both uh it it's both very much in evidence over the course of her life and we really first see it in in that episode in 1536 when uh when she's uh, arrested for for having made this secret engagement and I think there we also see that um Margaret is a person who uh is very loyal to the people she loves so she doesn't Overthrow Thomas Howard. Um, she sticks by him, and he sticks by her, and they go off, and they're imprisoned, and they write all of this, uh, all of this uh, quite angst-ridden poetry uh, about being separated from each other, and. We see this uh, as well when she gets married. Um, She marries Matthew Stuart, um, Earl of Lennox, whom nobody really likes very much. Um, Lennox is uh, uh, not a man who ever lives up to all of the things that he's supposed to do. He's supposed to be Henry's great servant in Scotland and uh, make this alliance uh, between uh, Henry's son Edward and Mary Queen of Scots and Lennox fails to do that, um, and he fails as regent of Scotland when he assumes that role um, in the 1570s. Uh, but Margaret sticks by him all the way through, and, and they have this tremendously uh, strong marriage. And she also sticks by her um, uh, her her sons um, by Henry Lord Darnley and, and by Charles Stewart, uh, and. Even when their actions cause her um, considerable grief, uh, she's a, a tremendously sort of loyal person. Um, so, a, a little bit of a romantic, and uh, and certainly somebody for whom family uh, is is tremendously important. One of the challenges of writing biographies of women in this period, of women in particular, is that. Um, often they describe themselves and are described by others just in terms of their relationship to to other people. So on her tomb, she talks about herself as the daughter of, the mother of, the cousin of, the aunt of, and just basically defined in terms of relationships. Um, But when you go back through and you reconstruct the lives and you look outside of the traditional uh, sort of instrument uh, arenas of power and you look off into those into those corridors and into the uh, sort of the secret estates and and the and the conversations then suddenly you you recover this whole um, dimension of female influence and female power that's uh, that's quite fascinating.
0: You suggested there that she had big ambitions for her family. Could you tell us a bit more about how successful they were and what that involved?
3: Yes, I think it's in 1536 that we first see how uh, how near the throne of England uh, Margaret could be. Because in the absence of an adult male heir, people really speculate about who has the best right to succeed and you sort of go uh, and people can come up with very um, uh, a real range of scenarios about who has the best claim to the throne so they might say well you know um, he's uh, he may be illegitimate but at least he's a man or she might be a woman but at least she's legitimate or uh, he might be um, a boy, but at least he's born in, uh, and, but he's born in Scotland. So he has less right than a girl born in England. And when you don't have that very obvious adult male heir, um, then people expend a lot of energy thinking about who has, who has the next best claim. And so Margaret is sort of first talked about as a potential successor in 1536. And, it starts to come back again in the reign of her cousin Mary Tudor, Mary the First, um, because uh, Mary wants a Catholic successor. She doesn't want to be succeeded by her Protestant half sister Elizabeth, uh, and she has a meeting with two of her of her confidants, Simon Rastard and William Paget, where she talks about. Um, The I who she would like to succeed if she doesn't have children of her own. And she mentions, uh, she talks about Margaret. And that doesn't come to anything because Mary gets married herself soon afterwards and focuses on on having an heir of her own. Uh, But it's that question of, uh, but that question of Margaret's claim to the throne comes back again. And what we really, where this really becomes important is after the Queen of Scots's first husband dies in December 1560. Uh, because up until this point, Mary, Queen of Scots, has been married to Francis II of France. uh, And when she is suddenly widowed, Margaret says, well, I have got uh, a son, Henry Lord Darnley, who is Mary... Uh, Queen of Scots's uh, cousin, um, who is Catholic and who, unlike Mary, is born in England, and the idea is that if you unite these two claims to the English throne, um, it would be a very—they would have a very powerful claim either to succeed Elizabeth or to overthrow Elizabeth. And so, what she is envisioning is her son as king of Scotland by virtue of his marriage to the Queen of Scots and then subsequently as, as potentially um, ruler of England as well.
0: So Margaret played a key role in those kind of matchmaking deals and the power plays for her family, would you say?
3: Yes, absolutely. It's really quite fascinating. It's a, It's a a very secretive process, so it, it can be tricky to reconstruct. But we've actually got a surprising number of sources um, about this. So we've got ambassadors' reports uh, because Margaret is constantly in in contact with the Spanish ambassador because she believes that Spain will see this as uh, as potentially a very good thing uh, to have a uh, a Catholic monarchy throughout England and Scotland. Also, we see her in contact with other Catholic nobles in Northern England, which is where most uh, which is where her estates are. And we see her in contact with both Catholics and Protestants in Scotland trying to persuade them that her son uh, has, will be a, a, a safe uh, sort of match for the Queen of Scots. And so there, there, there's, a, there's an awful lot of politicking uh, going on back there, a lot, of, a lot of giving of gifts, a lot of uh, secret meetings and uh, um, secret letters and, uh, and that sort of thing. Lord
0: Darnley, Margaret's son, was a pretty notorious figure of the time. Can you tell us a bit about their relationship?
3: Yes, it's... Really, uh, it's such a tricky one, actually, because Darnley, uh, we only really know much about Darnley's personality once he's gone into Scotland, at which point he is just uh, one of of the most spectacularly useless people uh, uh, of the period. He's a a dreadful husband to marry. Um, He's tremendously lazy. He's treacherous and uh, just generally very bad news. Whereas before Darnley goes into Scotland, we really don't know an awful lot about what he was like. We know a lot about his achievements. So, you know, we know that he was good at playing the lute and that he wrote um, lovely poetry and that everyone thought he was very handsome and Elizabeth had him, uh, had him around him. The court on on important occasions. Uh, so, But in terms of what he's actually like, we don't really have a ton of evidence before he goes into Scotland. We know that he is very much cherished by Margaret and by Lennox and that they really take charge of his um, education. It's something that, that she says later about her younger son is that she was not able to give him the same kind of upbringing that she was able to give Lord Darnley. So he's very much a child who is uh, you know reminded of his importance of his place in the line of succession and she's very loyal to him through throughout his life so even when she's getting these reports about um, how disastrously he's behaving um, she tries to save the situation for him. Uh, she's imprisoned in the tower for most of the time that Darnley is married to the Queen of Scots it's When Mary and Darnley have their son uh, when they have uh, Prince James, uh, Darnley refuses to attend the christening because their, their relationship has, has deteriorated so badly. And it's Margaret who sort of realizes that this is, you know, quite dreadful that he's not uh, attending the christening. And she arranges to have, you know, this elaborate uh, bearing cloth sent uh, so that her family is going to be uh, included in the in the ceremony in, in some way. Uh, so she's always looking out for him. She's very ambitious for him and she's always supporting him. And when he dies, um, she's, Absolutely devastated, to the point that um, Elizabeth releases her from captivity and uh, and takes her out takes her out of the tower so that she can um, you know re- recover from the, the terrible shock and the loss uh, outside of outside of her prison.
0: In many ways, Margaret was essentially caught between the English and the Scottish royal families during this period. What was the relationship between these two monarchies
3: like at the time? Yes, it's interesting because Margaret is Margaret's not really part of the Scottish royal family, but she's very close to them. Um, because Henry VII's eldest daughter marries James IV, and because they have children, the Scottish royal family has a place in the English line of succession. And when, given the fact that uh, that Henry VIII breaks with Rome, uh, and the Scottish monarchs remain Catholic, uh, at least James V and, and Mary Queen of Scots do, there are Catholics in England who who think that uh, the Scottish monarchs have a better claim to the English throne than Henry's Protestant daughter, than Elizabeth I, who can be considered. Illegitimate, um, so that so they are sort of entangled in in terms of the succession. On the other hand, they are traditionally uh, they they are traditionally enemies. Scotland and France are. Traditional allies and uh, English monarchs uh, would often claim to be the feudal overlords of Scotland, which uh, which they weren't, and which understandably caused uh, caused a lot of tension. There were constant uh, constant raids back and forth along the border. So even though the monarchies are very entwined and at points they are in alliance, uh, there is also a lot of tension between them over the course um, over the course of the period.
0: As you mentioned, uh, Margaret was a really passionate Catholic, and this was a a time of real religious tension and tumult. What implications did that have for her life?
3: At first, she's not in. She's not one of these people who rushes immediately into one religious camp or the other. And I think quite a lot of people over the course of Henry VIII's reign aren't really sure what's going to happen. And they're able to accommodate themselves to what he does. But during the reign of his son, Edward VI, whose regime pursues a much more... Uh, decisively Protestant, uh, Protestant policy. It's in that period that we start to see Margaret um, break from uh, the English Church, and. With, I think in particular, it, it's about uh, the attack on the mass. Um, I think she finds very hard, very hard to accept. So by the time her Catholic cousin, Mary, comes to the throne, she's associated with the old religion and that um, binds the two of them together. Even though they've been friends for a long time, uh, this is a, a real sort of renewal of of the ties between them and is, as, as, as I mentioned, one of the reasons that, that Mary considers Margaret um, a possible successor. Then, when Elizabeth comes to the throne, uh, we hear that uh, in, a, in moments of anger, Margaret questions Elizabeth's right to the throne because Elizabeth is, you know, the uh, the child of Anne Boleyn by this Protestant marriage that she had to Henry VIII uh, that Margaret does not necessarily recognise and. So, whether or not that was something Margaret felt all the time or was something she just said in sort of a moment of anger, um, not really sure but uh, but it does mean that suddenly she's very much on on the opposite side, and her faith is. Important when she's promoting Darnley as a potential suitor to the Queen of Scots, the idea that Darnley will strengthen Mary's claim to the English throne and that Darnley will be a Catholic husband um, is important. Now, when after Darnley dies, um, Margaret desperately wants revenge on the Queen of Scots, which means that she ends up in alliance with a lot of Protestants in both England and Scotland, um, but not. Uh, not exclusively so um, but to a real extent which shows that even though you could be very very devoted to um, to one religion it was not necessarily possible to, to entirely separate yourself from uh, from everybody who disagreed with you and Margaret gets along quite well with many of Elizabeth's Protestant counselors um, but she remains loyal to her own religion until her until her death and when she and Mary are reconciled uh, they hope that they are going to be able to see James the sixth um, brought up as as a Catholic, uh, he's not uh, in the end, and when he does assume the throne of England, uh, it's as a Protestant ruler. So uh, her family does uh, does eventually rule in in both countries, but but as Protestants rather than as Catholics.
0: As you mentioned, um, whether through her own strong-willedness or through power plays of court, Margaret found herself in the Tower several times in her life. How close did she come to meeting the same fate as Anne Boleyn or um, Thomas More?
3: Oh, it's... In 1536, when she is uh, when she's imprisoned because of the the affair with Thomas Howard, uh, there is a lot of speculation about what's going to happen to them because Howard is sentenced to death, and. Uh, some observers, so for instance, Reginald Poole, who is uh, a descendant of of the House of York, says, "Oh, I don't think anything's going to happen to them. Henry's just making a he's just making a fuss so that he can show himself merciful at the last minute." Um, whereas Margaret's mother, um, Margaret Tudor, who who is living in Scotland um, as uh, as the mother of of the king, is really quite genuinely frightened, and she asks uh, Henry that Margaret be allowed to come and live in Scotland, and you know she'll never see. Him again that she'll be kept safely, uh, safely out of trouble. I think Henry then immediately says, "You know, I wasn't planning to do anything quite so serious. In fact, I'm going to send her off to live with, uh, to live with some nuns. So it probably feels more dangerous uh, than it is. Um, but Thomas Howard does die. Uh, he he dies of a fever rather than because he's executed. But the but the episode does cost him his life. Uh, the in, when she is imprisoned because of the Darnley match, I don't think there is ever any question that she is going to be that she's going to be put to death, but she is subjected to quite rigorous punishment. She can, uh, we have reports from the ambassadors saying that you know she's, she's hungry, she's cold, um, the she has no money, and it's hard for her to always get messages to friends. So it's uh, probably not facing the same sort of. Uh not quite the same trial as, as somebody like Anne Boleyn or, or somebody like Thomas More, um, but it's certainly a, a real and and rigorous punishment.
0: Margaret was at the centre of so many key events and connected to so many central figures from this period. Why do you think that we don't know more about her?
3: I think that for... A long, I, I think it comes back to this question of falling in between sort of English history and and Scottish history, and most of the uh, I think for a long time English historians would 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 tend to say, or historians of England would tend to say, well, you know, the Countess of Lennox is probably not not my domain, and and Scottish historians would say, well, she did live in England for her entire adult life, so uh, so she's not really Scottish in any. Meaningful sense. Whereas I think now um, historians are tremendously interested in connections across the border and how the realms interact and what those relationships are like. So Margaret is actually a really interesting figure uh, because she kind of falls in between the two.
0: And why do you think there's still such an appetite for figures from the Tudor period? Why do you think this world and the Tudor court continues to fascinate us
3: well i I have a theory I'm not sure <laughs> if it's right but, um but I think with the with the Tudors it's it's far enough away that it does, there is still that that romance of distance. uh, And it's, you know, there are jousts and there are balls and all of these things that we see in films. But I think we have a real sense of people in context in this period. So it's not just that we know about the kings and the courtiers, but we know about um, about. The merchants and the advisors and the writers, and suddenly, uh, we've really because so much is written down and so much survives in this period, we uh, feel as though we can really enter the world um, in in a very immersive way and and I think that's one thing that that keeps drawing us back. I think the other thing is is the sheer uh, drama of the of the story, certainly uh, the story of of the tutors themselves, uh, they cultivate an air of inevitability. But it's an impression uh, of inevitability that they really, really try to create, because when you're living it, it doesn't feel inevitable at all. Uh, And there is constant uncertainty about who is going to come next. And when you don't Know who's going to come next, and when you're worried that uh, that there isn't going to be a stable succession, then there is terrible fear of civil war, and that the organs of government aren't going to function, and uh, that the entire political system is going to be disrupted, and people are living with that kind of anxiety uh, and uncertainty all the way through all the way through the period, and so I think the uh, uh getting back into the story and and figuring out how it felt to be to be living it um i think uh is really exciting and probably keeps keeps us coming back. Uh, the fact that you know you have also got the tremendous art and the tremendous architectural survival and um and the writing um makes it you know, much more vi- uh, makes it tremendously vivid um as well and i think it comes back to that idea of Uh, we feel that this is a period where we can really get to know people.
2: That was Morgan Ring. So High a Blood, The Life of Margaret, Countess of Lennox, is out now in the UK, published by Bloomsbury. And both Morgan Ring and our earlier guest, Annie Gray, will be speaking at this year's History Weekend events, which take place in Winchester and York this autumn. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. And now it's time for this week's History News with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans.
5: Pages printed more than 500 years ago by William Caxton, the first English printer, have been rediscovered in a University of Reading archive. Caxton was a translator and importer of books into England, and in 1476 he established the first printing press in the country at Westminster, where the two pages were produced. Described as incredibly rare and of great significance to scholars and book experts, the pages show religious texts in medieval Latin. There are no other known copies of the pages, from a book which is believed to have been printed in London in the 1470s. The pages have been owned by the University of Reading since 1997, bought as part of a bigger collection of manuscripts and books, and it was Erica Dubeck, Special Collections Librarian at the University, who recognised the pages. She told the BBC, quote, I suspected it was special as soon as I saw it. The trademark black letter typeface layout and red paragraph marks indicate it is very early Western European printing, she said. It's astonishing that it has been under our noses for so long. The pages will now go on public display for the first time since they were sold from Caxton's print shop in the 15th century. In other news, Leicester Cathedral is to provide the backdrop for a new production of the Shakespeare play Richard III. The last Plantagenet king was reburied at a service at the cathedral two years ago, and while organisers of the play have stated that the staging will be, quote, sensitive, they also said it's possible that there are people who are not going to like it. Shakespeare's drama portrayed the king as a ruthless villain. Representatives from the Richard III Society called the decision, quote, a monumental mistake, which would be, quote, a deliberate humiliation to the king. Despite the criticism, the cathedral has said the show will go ahead as planned in July. Meanwhile, the importance of a recent haul of ancient human remains from a cave site in South Africa has been revealed. The finds include the remains of at least 18 Homo naledi, as the species is named, and support the idea that the ancient people deliberately placed their dead in the cave. Tests on the material found the bones to be between 335,000 and 236,000 years old, making them far younger than many scientists had expected, and could mean that the Homo naledi people overlapped with the earliest Homo sapiens.
2: OK, well that's about it for this week, but please do join us next time when we'll be talking about the Reformation.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.
2: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.